Welcome to Help From Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help From Future Self. It's a conversational Keyforge podcast made by, and listened to, hopefully, by Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. Uh, my girlfriend, mom, dad, other family members, people who know me call me Alex. But you can call me Scuzzy if you want. If we run into each other online, that's totally cool. Uh, I am joined this week, as with every week, by producer of the show, host of the show, Guy who makes it all happen, Mikey Forge Coach. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Yo, yo, yo. What's going on, man? Not too much. Excited to talk to you today because I think this is a very fertile topic we're going to be discussing with a more deck assessment slash decks of Keyforge themed episode. But before we get to that, you've been doing something super cool. I believe you mentioned it on the podcast last week uh, on your video series on YouTube. Tell us a little bit about the Dark Amber Tree and what's been going on with that. Well, the Dark Amber Tree is now my annual Keyforge Advent Calendar. Uh, it first started off with uh, our good friend locally, Mats, who created this basically Keyforge Advent Calendar, and, and he decked it up. Had this great uh, like whole Advent Calendar of deck boxes he put on the wall, and I started it last year in a less uh, festive way, but just opening. And then this year, I actually made a tree, attached it to a Keyforge poster. And uh, put all these decks from Mass Mutations, Coda, AOA, and of course Worlds Collide into Mass Mutation boxes because it had the nice side flap so I could just randomize the decks and you don't know what you're opening. And of course, because there's Dark Amber all over those boxes, hence it's called the Dark Amber Tree. But as I've been doing this, each day I've been opening up a deck and seeing what's what. And it's been really fun exercise looking at decks. And each day, it's it's. Uh, I don't think I've had. I think I only had two Worlds Collide decks back to back. But it's been basically a different set each day. I've yet to open an AOA deck, which I'm super pumped for. And today, um, well, I guess you guys are hearing this in the past. So on Tuesday, I opened up a deck that had a low creature count, and I opened two so far with 13 creatures and 17 Ember. So two decks that did this, but this one uh, is called Lunabolt, the Racer of the Base, and I opened it today, and I was so jazzed about it because it had Curious Saurus, and it also had uh, like all these ways of exalting your opponent's creatures and stuff, but not a lot of creatures for you. And I noticed there was these ways I think that you could really abuse the way Ember gets moved around onto your opponent's creatures because it had like an equalize in it as well, so you could. Uh, spread yours out and then load it all on their biggest creature and then it had uh the the one thing i was really stoked about was a soul keeper which is the upgrade that says when this creature gets destroyed destroy your opponent's most powerful creature and if you think about the way curiosaurus works mm. all the embers going on their most powerful creature so they're only going to put one ember back onto one of your creatures and you're getting the rest so i just saw these really neat little um ways that the deck could work uh, and then it also had an Orb of Invidious, which I'm going to be honest, and I think you're probably with me, Alex, is I'm not stoked to see Orb of Invidious. Generally not, no. But with a low creature count deck where I realize I probably don't have to reap to win the game, I was like, you know what? This actually could be really tight. Hmm. And have you played this deck yet? I have not. Um, I will have played it when you guys end up hearing this, but uh, on my Tuesday stream is kind of my plan. Is I, I think I'm going to be, until this is done, is most likely playing the decks through the week are going to be my decks I play on the stream on Tuesday. So if you're interested in seeing these in action, if you're watching the videos, all that sort of stuff, and following along on my YouTube, head over to the 
twitch.tv slash Boulevard Blake. That's BLVD Blake every Tuesday evening. I'm usually starting about 536 uh, Pacific. That's uh, 839 Eastern, where I will spend a couple hours jamming all these decks and uh, seeing if they perform the way I formulated through my analysis during opening. Now, that feeds very nicely into our topic for today because one of the things that we're going to be talking about is assessment of decks. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think the way that this got kind of you know, kicked off was that there was a great interview with the creator of Decks of Keyforge and the creator of SAS uh, over on our, our sister podcast, Call of Discovery. So big shout out uh, to to the folks over at uh, uh, COD. Um, and uh, they had Nathan Westlake on, the fellow who coded uh, Decks of Keyforge, who runs that website, and who is the one who came up with SAS, which I did not know stands for Synergy Anti-Synergy. I was unaware of that, Blake. I knew that actually. I yeah. I actually have had a theory that I thought the synergy and anti synergy were were one of my like least favorite parts of Dex of Keyforge, but I understood why it had to stay because the whole score and SAS thing was tied into that brand. So I I am I'm a big uh, proponent of the arc the AERC score, but I'm not as much into the synergy anti synergy. And hearing him talk about it, it made a little more sense in that podcast. Mm-hmm. But for me, I always thought that that was one of the things that adds a question mark to the rating system because it does have, a, I think, a subjective quality to it in a way. Like, obviously, there's some obvious synergies and anti-synergies, but I thought it was harder as the sets progress and there's more depth of card pool to really uh, attribute that uh, to, to the highest level. But you can't really go away from it now because it's become such a branded part of the whole DOK system. And of course, there's a team named after it. Mm-hmm. Indeed, there is. So, you know, I want to encourage everybody to go check out that interview on Call of Discovery, uh, and not just because Ed and, and Zach are, are homies of ours, but also because I think that there was a lot of interesting information about what DOK is and how it works and what SAS is and how it works and how it was intended to be used by the person who created it. And one of the things that Nathan said in this interview, and I don't want to spoil too much of it because I think it's a great listen in and of itself, is that he sees SAS as a tool that is basically like a high-level summary. It is not a replacement for playing your decks. And he even said that, you know, he said, if you've got a bunch of decks and you're looking to figure out which ones you want to invest some time into really learning, then SAS is a great way of just sort of being able to pick those ones out. But he also acknowledged the fact that there's lots of things that SAS does not take into account. And I really want to emphasize that because one of the things that you and I say over and over and over, Blake, like it's a mantra, is you have to play your decks. There's no way of knowing, you know, what a deck has in it beyond just sort of, uh, you can make educated guesses and you can use your experience with the card pool and your experience with how certain decks play and apply them to a new deck. But until you play it, you don't know for certain. And I, I thought that was really compelling to me because it was basically the person saying the, the person who, you know, if we're being real is the reason that there's a secondary market for Keyforge. even other mm-hmm. places that sell decks tout SAS scores, right? Like if you see yeah, decks for true. sale on eBay, they talk about the SAS score, you know? Uh, yeah, so and, it, sorry, and, go ahead. Yeah. And he was also like even saying that, and this is feeling like this is the number, this is the medium is 10, 10 reps. That's the number where you're getting an idea. And he even admitted that he had a deck it actually took till the 20 rep mark before he truly understood it. But if you're not playing a deck 10 times, 
and then passing judgment pre those 10 reps, you're maybe not getting the full scope of what the potential of the deck could be. And he even goes into this theory of, of the 10 in much greater detail and why you sometimes have to use the DOK system for, for finding out certain attributes that may be appealing to you in the style of play or the type of deck you want to utilize moving forward with your Keyforge games. Mm-hmm, totally. I, I just think it's fascinating that the, the person who is partially, let's not just say partially, one of the key figures in the development of Keyforge, both in its secondary market and the most broadly applied ratings tool for Keyforge decks, says you need to play your decks to know for sure the system isn't mm-hmm. perfect. That's something yeah. that you and I have always said. And, you know, it's coming from the horse's mouth in this case. And that, I think, leads us into sort of the broader discussion that we wanted to have today, which is very much about how do you assess a deck when you open it up? Blake, you are so good at this. I am less good. But let's let's talk a little bit about what process looks like. Okay, so... The reason why I think I have an aptitude for doing this is because I have a YouTube channel that I like to fuel. And so therefore, I take time to to use it as a means of practice. So mm-hmm. anything you're going to do repetitively, you're going to become more proficient. And I think that's just the way it it goes with, with anything in life. So I am taking the time to create content for my YouTube and I use opening decks as a means to do that. Unfortunately, there's also the the secondary side of it where I'm now having too many decks and I'm wondering, what do I do with, like, how do I keep doing this? Because I don't think it's it's really uh, going to be a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. But what I like to do is open the deck and because it's YouTube, people want to see what's in the deck. So just looking at the deck list and reading it uh, is not a thing. I'm sorry. Like, as much as you want to keep a deck sealed for the secondary market, like, I really don't think anyone cares about that anymore for the most part, whether the deck's sealed or not. Like, as long as it's it's in good condition, especially with icons now, you want to see where those bonus icons mm-hmm. are. And if this becomes a new thing where, because we don't, I don't think, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun on this or not, but I don't think, I think we're probably seeing enhancements again, right? It's not just in in this set, It's it's moving forward. I expect that we'll see them. Yeah. I yeah. Think it's gonna and be so you're going to want to see where those go because it really changes the complexity and the characteristic, actually, of what your deck has. Like enhancements add character to a deck. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. It's what makes yeah, the deck it, more distinct than, it, uh, you know, even a deck with the same cards or comparable cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so it's so interesting. So. My question that I'm going to first pose to you as the audience and our listeners is when you open up a deck, is your first thing to do to scan the deck and instantly import it into DOK to find out what that SAS score is? Second thing I do. Um, the Second first thing, thing. Okay. What's yeah. your first thing? My very first thing is just reading through every card that's in the deck. I like, I, I, I don't necessarily crack it open and look. Um, depending on what kind of scenario. And if it's just like, oh, I bought a deck, we're about to play a game, but I'm using a different deck, sometimes I'll just scan it right away. But before I even do that, I will always have a quick read through of everything that's in the deck. And, you know, it depends what I'm looking for, right? Like that that's very much a process of just looking and seeing, oh, that looks interesting. Or, oh, that's a card mm-hmm. I don't have in another deck. Or, oh, that's a cool combo. I've seen that before. Or, oh, I could see how these would work, but it's very casual. I don't do a deep analysis before I scan the deck and take it over to DOK. How about you? For me, well, because I'm opening up on my YouTube, um, I would say that I'm kind of 
I used to be in that boat, especially if we're at a tournament or something or in store. Uh, you kind of like do it that way and scan and see. But but I'm I'm definitely going to change that because the process I'm currently going about, I'm finding a lot more rewarding. So we are now in a period of time in Keyforge where the ability to just have that tactile like action of the cards where you you're getting to hold them, you're getting to touch them and feel them and play with them in in that way has been diminished because of covid and we're not playing in stores as much we're we're playing online so when you get a new deck and i'm sure uh, a good portion of us will be in this boat because we do have the holidays coming around the corner and i'm sure if you're a, an avid keyforge player you're most likely going to have someone give you a deck or two at christmas it's a really nice easy gift that's quite memorable um side note for anyone out there looking to get a gift idea for someone get someone one keyforge deck as a present. The reason being is it's going to be completely unique, just the one. So you know that one can have a sentimental value attached to it because you can be like, oh, in my Master Vault, I'm going to put this deck was from so-and-so. And it creates that sort of, it's, it's like when I talked about trophies, it's the same sort of idea. A Keyforge deck is a great gift because it will always be unique. It's always going to have a unique quality to it. So when you get these decks in the holidays, if you get them as a present, open it up and actually open it. Touch the cards, look through each of the the cards that are in each house and start looking at what you see as they come together. Because I find for me personally, when I look at a deck from the list does not compare to how I look and see the pictures come together. Because when you're playing the game, you are looking at the words that are printed on the cards, you are looking at the pictures, and you're going to draw correlations from that much more than you necessarily just see from the list. Mm -hmm. And it's also going to create a familiarity with those cards even further. I should say visual side that um, when a set has first come out before we know anything about it, my favorite thing, Mm -hmm. especially if I haven't spoiled the entire card pool for myself, which I admit I'm bad for is Mm -hmm. to open up a deck and go through it and just read the cards that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously that's a thing that becomes less, you know, feasible the more you get to know a set. You know, I'm at a point now where I've seen every mass mutation card. I've seen every Keyforge card ever printed. Like there's, there's none left for me, which isn't hard to do because, you know, the game is still relatively speaking in its infancy. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember when you came back from, from Vegas and you had those, those first worlds collide decks for us and the amount of fun that I had just reading through that very first deck that you handed to me and going, these cards go together. Like it was the first time that I had seen tribute plus, uh, exile as a combo and mm-hmm. i was like because i f- came across uh tribute or not trip is it tribute yes it was tribute yeah. and i was like well that's that's kind of cool i guess and then exile was like whoa no 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 this is amazing so mm-hmm. yeah just that feeling of discovering those things for yourself the first time before anybody else tells you what's great is just the best feeling in the world and i think that you know this show notwithstanding I might try and not spoil the entire next set for myself just so I can capture a little more of that. Yeah, and honestly, the chances are we're not going to be playing by the time the next set comes out. Mm -hmm. Who knows if it'll be released actually when they say it will. Mm -hmm. Because for all we know, like I know a lot of people in the community are a little bit outraged that we haven't had a a Crucible cast this month and that the FFG side of things has been a little bit silent and not building any anticipation or any excitement whatsoever for the new set. But I mean, I know everyone feels this way and they're being really hard on FFG. We are being a great community in keeping the love for the game alive. And you have to understand that there's 
huge economic impacts for them and their ability to invest and maybe even decide how they're going to move forward is is very challenging. We, we're we're doing a great job of keeping them community, community together. There's no way they're not aware of that. So as long as we keep doing what we're doing, this game will keep trucking on. Like I firmly believe that we are too great of a community and we have too much love for this game and too many ambassadors within the game keeping it alive. So people don't be so hard on FFG. I know a lot of people really have some things to say and distaste about certain things, but let's be patient during this time and, and give them the benefit of the doubt that something better is going to happen and come along. Well said. Um, and I don't want to diverge too much from from sort of our topic that we're talking about today. But mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know about what the economics of this game are for FFG, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that the release of, of, of Mass Mutation, of course, came at a time when it was like, you know, naturally, they would have loved to have waited until in-person play was a thing again until we could have you know regular meetups and vault tour events and local primes and things like that you know even just regular chain bound i'm sure that that, that would have been the best thing in the world um and we can see what the impact on the set has been without those things uh you know it's not hard to detail but i mean they they had the set ready to go they delayed it for a while but at a certain point if you have all of this stuff just sitting in your warehouse collecting dust you're gonna to have to recoup at some point just for cash flow reasons so they have more knowledge now of where the world is at and they have a longer runway for the next set so i think that they're gonna to have to make the right decisions for the game as far as they can tell and for themselves as a company and there's no getting around that so with 100%. that said when you scan the deck in when you go over to dok what is the first thing you look at on decks of keyforge well so so first off like i said I think it's a good idea to spend some time with your own thoughts on the deck. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm just curious, do people try and predict the SAS score for a deck before they scan it? Do you do that, Alex? Uh, I'm bad at it, so I will make guesses, but my guesses are almost always terrible. Yeah, it's true. It's a, it's a fun thing you can do, but um, I I also think before, like I, I so I as I said, I did a video on my weekly vlog talking about this, giving a little lead up, and I got some really good feedback from some people, especially um, one listener had this amazing idea of he said that he actually stopped using the uh, decks of Keyforge until he's played the deck a bunch of times, and then he scans it in because he didn't want to have an influence. Um, like at all it was uh my man michael Sanaforenzo. he he said this and i thought that was such a cool idea so he could develop his own opinion of the deck before bringing it into into dok and seeing what it was and i thought that was an interesting way of doing it but i when i scan it in i kind of first look at the the sas score see what it is but for me i'm mainly looking at the ember control, expected ember, and board control. Like those are the things I'm I'm my eyes are going to first. Is I want to see where that is because I opened a deck today that the one I'm excited or on Tuesday that I'm excited for, Lunaboat, the racer of the base. And it was like what? I think it was a 62 SAS. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at the the score, it was like uh, a 14, a 9.8 on ember control, a 25 on expected ember, and a 14 on board control. Or maybe it was 14, maybe the, the board control and ember control were swapped. But I mean those are pretty good stats for a deck. If you're not looking at just the score, those stats are hot. It's going to perform. Mm -hmm. So those are that's what I look at is then I go SAS versus those metrics. That's the next thing I look at. Are they in line? 
And that's kind of how I, and I just go from there. I don't really look at the cards on there. I kind of just start looking at an overview of how it's viewing the efficiency, disruption, creature count, mutants, all the, all those new stats that are that are on it, like artifact control. I start looking at the numbers that are being uh, given and assigned to the deck in that regard. Yeah, that's very much what I do when I first go over to DOK. Like, obviously, it's cool when you first see the number. Um, and sometimes you look at the number, you go, oh, I thought would have thought it would have been better than that. Or, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that it would think it was this good. But the explanation for that lies in looking at how SAS ranks individually things like amber control, expected amber, you know, mm-hmm. speed, efficiency, uh, you know, other things like that. And so those are the first places I go. And lately, the stat that I've been looking at more than anything else has been speed and efficiency. Like mm. that has been the thing that I have found, especially in mass mutation, that all of my best decks from MMM are governed by is because, yeah, maybe you have like a lower uh, amount of amber control. Maybe you have a lower amount of expected amber, but a truly fast deck can get to all of those cards again and again and again. And it's one of those things that, you know, I'm sure that the algorithm that generates the score takes that into account when it says expected amber or amber control. But, you know, there, there is the part of me that says, well, a deck that gets to see its cards more than once basically has the opportunity to double up on most of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's actually a really good point. I'm I'm also a a champion of the speed score. I think that is such a great stat, and it really you're right. It does tell you the ability to go through your deck and see cards more than once. So I th- I think that's a very good point. And pretty much almost always, if you have logos, that stat's going to be above average. I feel. Mm-hmm. Totally true. I, it's also one of those things, too, where I really love seeing just, uh, you know, the scores that are assigned. If you hover over on DOK things like, you know, your Amber Control, it will show you all of the cards that it says have Amber Control and the score that it assigns to them. And this is a really interesting activity. And I think you were the one who hit me to this, was starting to look at that mm-hmm. and really think about what that means in context. Because oftentimes, you know, uh, uh, and this is not a criticism of Nathan, I don't agree with the way he scores certain cards. I think that mm-hmm. he adjusts and has shown like, you know, he's he certainly does not claim to get things right the first time ever. In fact, he says constantly, I adjust constantly. I change the the way things are ranked based on the information that I have available to me, which is great. And he also takes input from people who email him, which is also great. But it is one of those things where oftentimes I look at the scores and I go, I think it's a little dodgy to expect that you're going to get any Amber control out of card X, whereas card Y, why that's like a crazy amount of Amber control. And it's insane that it only has a score of 1.7 or something like that, which mm-hmm. too much to protect does. And the, the example that I'm looking at right now, where too much to protect is one of the greatest Amber control cards in the history of the game. And certainly, you know, I think uh, would, should score higher in any reasonable metric. But with I think that it just said, doesn't because of the fact that if they don't have more than six, it's not doing anything. Where ones that steal just for the like tribute, for example, is probably way higher because it's always going to take some Ember away, no matter mm-hmm. how much they have. And I think the condition of six above six is what makes it a little bit more like not as uh, rated as highly but i will agree with you that it is amazing yeah absolutely like tribute tribute is i'm looking at it right now 2.66 which seems yeah. reasonable to me but i would put you know i think you're right i would just put uh, too much to protect a little bit higher but you know actually looking at those because it's such a great way to actually visualize all the things in your deck that are going to give you amber or that have amber control or that are going to speed up your play and that's an th- activity that I love doing because it really does give you that perspective 
um, because it is, you know, regardless of whether or not you agree with the scores, it's a very good way of looking at, okay, what are all the cards in this deck that I can expect to get some amber off of? Great. You know, that's a really fun, easy way for me to visualize how this deck is going to play. Same with speed, you know, same with disruption, uh, you know, same with board. If you want to just look and see what kind of power your creatures have. Um, I think that's one of the most awesome things about SAS is the assignment of each of those individual categories. Whether or not you agree with the individual scores that are placed on those cards, I think there's a tremendous amount of value in just being able to visualize different aspects of the deck that way. Yeah, for me, I have my own little rating system that I use when opening decks and I usually put it on screen is I just count the cards that do the thing. doesn't matter if it's going to capture all of your ember or it's going to capture one. It's like, how many cards do you have as outs for all these things? So what can you expect to draw? So if you're if you're thinking about ember control and it's like, okay, you have you have 15 cards, that's like almost half your deck can pull off uh, getting them off of check it one way or another. Uh, depending on how high they go but i mean knowing the how many outs you have i think is is a good number rather than having a value to it obviously some will do better than others but i think it's in the context of which i'm doing it which is just a quick look it's like if you're opening a deck and maybe even in like a sealed context kind of thinking about that way you don't have to dive too deep it's just a an easy number to remember okay i have this many cards i can draw upon that will help me do x mm-hmm, totally so I guess the sort of next thing that we really want to talk about when it comes to, uh, you know, sort of the assessment of uh, a deck and how you can use uh, SAS as sort of a, a tool for that is that SAS is literally about synergy and anti-synergy. Um, what kind of combo analysis do you do looking at the deck? Do you use DOK to help you with that? Do you try and like use your own memory and your own knowledge of the game to do that? Think about combos that you've seen before. Um, I know that you're good at identifying combos before you've ever played them or ever seen them played. What, what, how does that work for you mentally? I think it's kind of all of the above. Like some, I know things that exist. And so I'm recalling that information. Other times I see things that I didn't think about before. I think it's the most interesting when they're well, like I mentioned before, the the Orb of Invidious I was excited for because it's got a low creature count. Mm-hmm. And normally I don't think about Orb of Invidious at all, so I'm not spending any time. But when I was like, oh, it has a low creature count, and I actually realized the expected Ember in this is at a point where I maybe not even have to reap it all. So that means I could technically really abuse this Orb of Invidious for my opponent and not have the downside. So I think there's there's variables that come into play for the combos. Um, one of the things I was wondering is, when you first play a deck, Alex, um, and I actually want to call on your most recent deck that I sent you because I was pretty jazzed about that deck when I saw what it held and I thought it had some really cool potential, is when you're playing a new deck, do you go for uh, like your tried, tested, and true way of going about playing the game, which is you hold certain cards you know, or do you want to actually just play whatever you have the most of, board plus hand, to just see the deck the most as possible, cycle through it and see what comes together. Like, how do you play the first few games with a deck? I don't know that I actually play that much differently, Blake. Um, I feel like your strategy of just play everything out, see what happens, like shake it out and see if anything, you know, throw 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 a handful of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. I should start doing that because I try and play strategically right from the jump. And oftentimes I find that then it takes me a longer number of games to actually understand a deck because Mm -hmm. I'm not sort of playing with, I don't want to say with recklessness, but I'm not necessarily playing it with the same sort of like, you know, 
just uh, carefreeness that actually leads to a lot of great discoveries in Keyforge. Like some mm-hmm. of the best Keyforge discoveries I've ever made have just been random things that happen and you realize, oh my God, that combo, I didn't even see it there because I was too busy concentrating on, you know, oh, well, surely the thing I actually wanted to do here is use my Infernus to purge my Ritual of Tognath, not, you know, some other combination of cards or other things like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I definitely think it's a good piece of advice. And it's one that I'm going to try and take to heart just because very frequently I find my my first the first place I go is right to the crucible you know right to playing in competitive right to playing in competitive you know playing the deck to the best of my ability and not concentrating as much on discovery as I am just trying to like playing as if I was in a sealed tournament I guess would be a good way to put it Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I, I just do a couple games that way. It's like, let's just see what happens. If there's if there's obviously like identified some combos I'm excited for, I may play towards those. But for the most part, yeah, I, I think that sometimes just taking a game or two of just trying to cycle and see what comes out the other end, like you said, throw some spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks is, is an interesting method just to kind of get a feel for things. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any last thoughts on sort of this topic before we move on to the end of the show? I know that that pretty much uh, sums it up for what I was saying. Well, let's let's basically just take a moment here to really reiterate the fact that it's a great tool. We obviously use decks of Keyforge all the time. SAS is a tool, but just keep in mind that it is a tool that has, by the admission of its own creator, some shortcomings, and there is absolutely no replacement for actually playing and learning your decks. That is the number one way to learn what they can do, and oftentimes you will discover hidden gems because of that, which is one yeah. of the most amazing things about Keyforge. The thrill of discovery. Yeah, it's true, and I mean, I, it's a tool, like we said, and any tool is best utilized in the way you use it so think about how you're going to use that tool and get the most out of it for your style of play maybe that is just scanning it right away and seeing the score and that's how you works best for you maybe it's it's to get a confirmation of something you thought but um, take some time to do your own analysis of a deck whether that's figure out how good you think it will be on ember control board control all those sort of things take some time and use your your own noodle to figure it out and then go to dok i think you'll find That'll help expand your own knowledge and see where you're where you're at with certain things. Cause because like Alex said, sometimes you look at the number that's on DOK and you're like, oh, that seems off. And then you go look at the cards that are making up that number. And a big one for me was when Worlds Collide came. We had Saurians. And Saurians actually count negatively towards Ember Control because of the exalt aspect. So sometimes I'll look, okay, even though it's putting that ember out there as a potential something that you could you know, give your opponent, it still means that it can actually like when you need to get Ember from your opponents, take them off check. It's a little scores a little higher than it states. Totally. Can't finish an episode of help from future self without talking about our titular segment. This one's called help from future self. Blake, you got one for us this week. I do. And it relates to the subject of, you know, trying new decks, finding, finding how they work, what makes them tick and one of the greatest things that can happen is you make a mistake while playing, okay? Now, let me clarify the statement. Is you're making a mistake while playing a new deck, and it makes you go, oh, I should have done this actually because I would have actually got more embers. So when you make a mistake playing a new deck that leads to a discovery, like that's great. Like There's nothing wrong with that mistake because I'm sure there's not much on the line because you're most likely not playing a new deck in a some sort of online tournament that means something so 
allow that mistake to happen. And if your memory is fantastic and you can just note that down for next time, great. If not, create a little journal. Start noting down these cool discoveries you have on a new deck and what you learn with it. I've done that process before, writing down things I learn with a deck as I play it, especially if it's one I'm really interested in learning, and start noting these cool little events that happen uh, with the deck. Another great way uh, to same sort of concept as learning the deck in a new way is have your friend play the deck because their mind is going to be different than yours. And so watch them play your deck and it'll, you know, glean new ways that the deck can excel and possibly in a way you never considered. That's a great lesson. One to keep in mind, um, I should take better notes. That's a thing that you do very well that I, I have always admired. In fact, going way back to when we were first getting acquainted and I noticed that you had little sticky notes on a lot of your decks that just reminded mm-hmm. you of things about the deck, which I always thought was a cool system for just like, oh, yeah, I wanted to play this one because it had this cool thing about it. Or this one looked mm-hmm. like it would be a neat one to play in this kind of game. So very cool stuff. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me on The Crucible on Twitter and on Instagram at Scuzzy Gruen. Give me a holler if we end up playing against one another. I love to chat with people about Keyforge and to listeners of this podcast. Blake, you have so much stuff going on. Tell us all about it. Right now, I'm just going to point you to my YouTube. Boulevard Paper Fight, that's BLVD Paper Fight. That's where everything's happening right now. I honestly can say I am so grateful for all the comments that are happening and new people telling me how much they're enjoying the content. Like, I'm honestly floored by it. Not only that, but people are straight up writing like paragraph responses to what's happening. And I absolutely love it. I read every single comment and I always reply because if you're taking the time to write that, I will take the time to read it and give you my thoughts on what you're saying because I truly do appreciate it. And it's just it's great to see that people are thinking about the game in the same way I am and giving their two cents with what I'm uh, kind of putting out there. So thank you so much, everyone. Right on. All right. This has been a fun episode. I love talking about Keyforge. I love talking about non-game aspects of Keyforge, the larger world of Keyforge. Very curious to hear your thoughts about it. If you have any thoughts about how you assess decks or the ways in which you like to see decks assessed, please holler at us on social media. We would love to hear from you. We got to get out of here until next time. Stay focused.